Well, we'll be in Psalm 141, if you would like to turn there in your Bibles. Yesterday, my wife was showing me a picture of our pastor, Pat, and Molly celebrating, I believe, their 28th anniversary, and it just threw me back to when I uh, first met them. We came to Omaha Bible Church in 1991 with my family when I was in high school, and he was my high school uh, pastor, I guess you could say, for about six months, and then I stepped in to help with the fifth and sixth graders with my dad, uh, teaching role. But uh, I remember in 1991, he uh, came to one of uh, our, or my baseball game, played for a class B uh, school, and we were in Elkhorn, and I remember him and Molly sitting up there supporting me during that, and as I was thinking through that yesterday, I was telling Robin, I think, in some ways, I I do still feel like a pitcher up here, I mean, kind of on the mound, so to speak, but I have two pitches to throw. And hopefully you can see that as we're going through a text of scripture. One is the law, and we're going to see that in Psalm 141. We're going to see our hearts exposed so that we'd see our neediness. And and secondly, the second pitch is the gospel, that you would find rest in Jesus Christ, that you would turn to him and find rest and peace for your soul. And that's really the, the two pitches that, if you're going to use the metaphor of pitching, that a pastor has sure we can find many different metaphors. In Psalm 141, the psalmist really gives us the, the crux. It'd be David here. He's been running from Saul. His life is threatened. He is, because he's a stranger and alien, so to speak, in his own land, even hiding with the Philistines at, at parts of his uh, escape plan, he's away from the tabernacle and the temple. And so that deprives him of being able to, in that visible place, worship the Lord and to rejoice in the presence of God among his people. But there's this interesting statement in verse 4, Psalm 141, verse 4. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds and company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. David seems to be recognizing deceit, a deceit that is deep within the heart. As I was thinking through deceit, I was remembering coming back to the pitching analogy of playing state for class B, and uh, we were neck to neck with this team. It's the finals. Whoever wins goes away is the state championship. And we had a guy on second base, and it was critical we get this score. And I've never seen this pulled off before, but all of a sudden... In the heat of everything going on, you hear clunk, like a ball had hit the wall, and then outfielders running around like crazy. Remember, we're on the base. And so we don't know what's going on. Where's the ball? Who's got the ball? And the coach is yelling, stay on the base. It's fake. Stay on the base. Stay on the base. In the midst of this chaos going on, had no idea. They had pulled off this amazing deceitful plan. Somebody had a a rock out in the outfield, threw it against the wall, and then with perfect timing, all the outfielders are running around in the same direction. And thankfully, we stayed put. The ball, we would have been tagged out, game done, been a different story. But maybe that picture of deceit isn't strong enough for us. I mean, even there, you needed the coach to be able to give some sensibility to what was going on in the playing field. Another illustration of deceit that maybe comes closer is the story of Helen Keller. I love to show the black and white movie Miracle Worker. She's born in 1880 in Alabama. She'd contracted an illness, leaving her deaf and blind. 
She lived, in her own words, at sea in a dense fog. She was filled with rage. She, could not un- she was unable to understand the world around her. One day, in a fit of anger, she dumped her little baby sister out of her crib. And that day, her parents knew they needed help. So someone suggested Alexander Graham Bell, who reached out on their behalf to Ann Sullivan, a teacher from the Perkins School of the Blind in Boston. And so she came to the home and began the task of trying to break into Helen's dark world of chaos by signing into her hand. In The Miracle Worker, there's this particular scene, the black and white film is just perfect for it, where Anne is reaching Helen's hand out to the water pump and pumping the water. Remember, 1880s. This is April 5th, 1887. This is the date. She is able to spell W-A-T-E-R in her hand as she's feeling the water. And in that moment, the world opened up to her. Light broke into her darkness. I mean, think of her trapped in the rage of her own mind, doesn't understand anything around or outside of her. And for that moment, the world broke through. And she began in this scene... She begins running to the tree, to the house porch, dropping on the ground. Come, 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 come. She doesn't know how to say anything. So she's not saying come, but it's just grunts. Come, 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 come. And Anne runs over there and is trying to spell ground, spelling the porch. Could you imagine that kind of entrapment? What if what the world has been teaching us, that our hearts need to be followed and it's about personal happiness, is actually a gross deceit and entrapment of our own hearts. That's what the Bible has to say. That we don't understand properly our relationship to God and to others. That there's something called sin at the very core of our being that has deceived us and blinded us. And David in Psalm 141 gives us four provisions from God for refuge from the heart. From the heart. Now, if you look at the context, you you could tell that he's at the brink of death. And verse 7 of Psalm 141 is when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. He's at the very brink of death. He's been running for his life. Saul wants him dead. He's a threat to the throne. He's been anointed by Samuel. He's a dead man. He's a marked man. He has to even hide in the midst of his enemies, the Philistines. Remember, he's the one God raised up to take on their champion, Goliath. They want him dead too. There's no place to go. And he's, what is he concerned about? In verse 4, don't let my heart incline to any evil. Don't let it be deceived, he's praying. And so there are four provisions from God for refuge from the heart. The heart in Scripture, the Bible underlines a twofold nature of man, and an inner man, the spiritual, and the outer man, Paul calls it, physical, material. So the immaterial and the material. But Scripture uses different focuses to deal with the immaterial. It'll talk about the mind, that's the spiritual understanding. It'll talk about the spirit, that we are spiritual beings in relationship to God. Soul. Is that we're, we've been created. We're living beings. That word soul is also used of animals. And the heart. The heart is the moral and spiritual control center of the life. Sometimes the Bible talks about steering. David here says inclining. Don't let my heart be inclined or steered. It's the idea of being directed. 
It directs the life through the intentions and desires that are rooted deep in the heart. Before we look at it, what is the the condition of the heart according to Scripture? Well, Jeremiah 17, verse 5 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. In verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we're cursed to trust in self. It's deceitful above all things. Romans 1, 18 through 25 describes it. The heart is darkened. Foolish hearts darkened. Ephesians 4, 18 through 19 refers to the inner man is, apart from God, is darkened in their understanding. Verse 18 of Ephesians 4, if you're taking notes, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. But that hardness of heart and deceit actually affects the life. So in verse 19, Paul says, they have become callous and have given themselves up, that would be enslavement, to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And in verse 22, it is corrupt through deceitful desires. So the heart corrupts the life. Itself is corrupted. And it enslaves the life by building callousness and practice habits. The world would call, use the term addictions. We would say enslavement to the heart. Jesus in Matthew 15 said that the heart defiles the person's thoughts and behavior. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles a person. So that's the condition that the Bible gives of the heart. That's the x-ray on our hearts. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six says, the one who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And the world says, trust in your heart, trust in yourself, follow your own desires, pursue personal happiness. And scripture says, no, there's a problem deep within that needs to be exposed. So four provisions. First provision from God for finding refuge from our hearts. (laughs) Again, he's looking for, yes, he's in the midst of this trial. He's running for his life, but he's concerned about his heart. So we've got to address that. The first spiritual provision is God's substitutionary counting. His substitutionary counting. I'm going to have C's here to go through. We'll also see his sanctifying control of the heart, his sovereign confrontation, and his saving covenant Lord, which is the crescendo of this. I need to move along to get to the crescendo because I don't like to leave that at the end when it's the best. So first is God's substitutionary counting. Verse one and two. Oh Lord, so Yahweh, the self-existent one, which is just amazing, the one who's transcendent, independent, I call upon you. That's a statement of worship. It's used of Abraham where he calls on the name of the Lord. He's acknowledging his faith and dependence upon the self-existent one. Hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. So here we find the title Yahweh emphasizing his self-existence and independence. But, and that's amazing. But the fact that he can call upon him to come near, that is amazing in itself. That the God who is independent, transcendent, self-existent, the eternal one, would have any thought for us. How can that be? Scripture in Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 15, 8, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. How can he listen to our prayers with sinful hearts? But that's the power 
of verse 2. The substitutionary counting. Verse 2. Let my prayer be counted, reckoned, seen, viewed by you, God, as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now remember, David has no access to the tent of worship, the tent of meeting. He's on the run. He's hiding. So this concept of counting is huge because he's recognizing that he doesn't have access to the tent of meeting. How will God hear his prayers? The transcendent one attend to his needs, even in dealing with his heart. He understands there has to be an exchange in God's view of David's approach to this holy God. And what he recognizes, there's an exchange that his prayer would be counted, viewed as the incense and as the evening sacrifice. Now, incense was offering of flour, oil, and frankincense. It was burnt upon the altar. It was added to the burnt offering, the lamb, which was offered every morning and evening. The burnt offering was offered as a substitute in behalf of the sinner. The symbolism is this. I'm going to read it here. The animal represents the worshiper. The entire destruction of the worshiper is pictured. But the worshiper is not destroyed, but preserved, and in an amazing act of God's grace, is dedicated to God and granted entrance into God's presence. So built into the picture of the sacrifice is a substitutionary death and a resurrection. For the sinner, by the substitute death of the animal, now has fellowship with God. So instead of the sinner dying in the presence of God, this burnt offering, this animal, is burnt completely and dedicated so that through that substitutionary death, that ultimately we know looks forward to Jesus Christ because, as Hebrews says, the blood of lambs and goats could not take away our sin. It was forward-looking. That's why this idea of counting is so important that the believer could be seen as one who has died to the demands of the law and now has fellowship with God. A beautiful picture. And what Daniel or David notices here and prays for is that God would look at his prayer, his entrance to him, as that sacrifice. Now, Ephesians 5.2 says, it's an, why don't you go there, Ephesians 5.2, and you turn in a little bit would be helpful. Keep us awake on a rainy day when we're planning naps for the afternoon. <laughs> Ephesians 5.2 takes both this concept of incense as a fragrant aroma and a sacrifice and connects them to Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul connecting both the incense, the aroma, and the sacrifice to Jesus Christ. Paul can say it another way, and maybe it's worth going to Romans chapter 4 since we did move to the New Testament. I wasn't planning on having you look here, but we'll do. He's quoting in Romans 4, verse 6 through 8. He's quoting from Psalm 32. And you see this flip side of imputation or crediting or reckoning. It's a not crediting guilt. There's both a crediting of righteousness that happens through the offering of Jesus Christ, but also a not crediting of guilt because that sacrifice has taken the guilt, namely Jesus Christ. 
So Paul says in verse 6 of Romans 4, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, that's the positive counting, crediting of righteousness, which we're going to connect to in Romans 4 is Christ's obedience to the law of God. But there's also a not counting that happens because Christ took the guilt, the lawlessness. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So here's David. Psalm 32, Romans 4, looking to Christ. He recognizes that he can't even come into the presence of God apart from God counting and not counting righteousness through the sacrifice as it's pointing to Christ, but not counting guilt. So you ask, how do we deal with our hearts? Well, first understand our sinfulness and the deceit of our hearts. And by faith, look to Jesus Christ. And we pray confidently, as Hebrews 4 says, we come to a throne of grace confidently because Christ has borne our sins and provided his righteous obedience. It's been credited to our account. So that's the first provision. And that, that's the thrust. That drives this whole text. Without this, God's not for us. He's against us. So there's the heartbeat of the gospel, crediting, counting. Now we move on to God's sanctifying control. We've seen his substitutionary counting. It's a provision of the sacrificial lamb pointing to Christ. Now we see his sanctifying control. He's for us. His goal is to conform us into his image. So resting on the promise of the gospel, we have confidence to approach him, knowing that the self-existent independent one is for us, not against us. And verse 3 and 4, then he prays. Again, it just amazes me that he's in the midst of a trial for his life. He's at the, the throat of death. The, the mouth of the grave is about to swallow him. And this is his concern, the, the, the counting of God, the promises of the gospel, and then sanctifying grace in his life. That would be helpful to us as we think through the trials that God brings us into, the waves of trials that he sends upon us to deal with our hearts. Remember the gospel? What's he doing in my life? Verse 3 and 4, sanctifying control. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Lord, he looks to, the, again, that God would even care about our mouths, that he would come as one who guards our mouths and attends to our hearts, could only be because he's made a provisional sacrifice for us. And so David recognizes in verse 3 that what comes out of the mouth is actually rooted in the heart. And so, Lord, guard my mouth, watch over my lips. Why? Because it, deeper is a heart issue, because out of the fountain of the heart is manifested the fruit of our lips. And in verse 4, don't let my heart incline or steer to any evil. To busy myself, we saw that in Ephesians 4, to practice, to become calloused. With wicked deeds. In company, we'll find fellowship with others that make us feel accepted and better in our deceitful doings. And let me not eat of their delicacies. A couple things to note, if you work backwards here, is the heart deceives us by laying before us a delicacy, something that promises good. That's why when you read Psalms, Psalm 16, the psalmist is saying, God is my good. James 1 will say, Don't 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 be deceived. Every good gift comes from God. 
Because the heart's deceit is the promise that there's good in something or someone else other than God. And when our heart deceives us into thinking this is delicate, it's like a replication of that fruit in the garden. This will bring delight. This will give me meaning and happiness and joy. It engages our practice. And we do it in fellowship with others. Romans 1 says we love to find the confirmation and justification of others affirming us. There's a practice to busy myself. So it becomes a habit ingrained. Habits can be good, right? Habits can also be very enslaving. And the heart then is steered to evil. So the antidote is to see the heart's deceit through scripture and to look back at the promises of the gospel, to ask that the Lord would work in our hearts and that he would use the trial to surface our fake delicacies, our fake promises of good, and that he would engage our hearts with, if I could sneak some verses from uh, what's coming up in verse 8, my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. Set my eyes on you. In you I seek refuge. My union with you, all the, the, the benefits of your salvation for me. That's how our hearts as Christians are confronted with the great exchange of the gospel He's not imputed sin to our account. He's imputed his righteousness to our account. He's for me, not against me. He's shaping me, showing me my fake promises of good and delicacies, but driving me to look to Christ, to look to God's provision to capture my heart. So for the believer, trials are opportunities to examine the fruit of our hearts and to look to him and his provision. There are opportunities to declare our faith in God. Lord, you're sovereign. Even over my heart, would you tend to my heart? Charles Spurgeon wrote, He who holds the heart is Lord of the man. He who holds the heart is Lord of the man. The third provision. God's sovereign confrontation with the gospel in our minds and our hearts and the desire for his sanctifying grace to work through the trial, to rivet our hearts upon his promises, to expose our false idols would be another way to describe delicacies. We then embrace God's confrontation. And he does it through believers. This is a hard one in our culture. We, we have a very difficult time sitting down and saying, hey, let me admonish you. Let me warn you about some delicacies I'm seeing you going after that's steering your heart. Let me place before you the promises of Christ and the gospel, that God's for you in Christ, and what he's given you in Jesus Christ. He's given you everything. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. In verse 5, what is David's concern? Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. So he prays to be confronted, stricken, like a hammer down on his head. It's a kindness, he says in verse 5. It is oil. That's used of anointing a king. It's used of perfume. It's used of medicine. You get the picture of blessing. And let my head not refuse it. He knows that his heart is about those delicacies. He's focused on that. He needs the confrontation along the, the side of the head. Why? Because his prayer is against their evil deeds. In verse 6 and 7, he knows that in the end, God's justice will be served. 
When their judges are thrown down over the cliff, that's the princes and rulers that have been against him, whether it's Saul or Absalom or outside nations like the Philistines. Then they shall hear my words for they are pleasant. That's the, the Israel. He knows that God has anointed him king and one day God will remove Saul and those who are his enemies and the people will turn to him. That's God's promised plan. I have to wait on that. I have to wait for your justice to be served. But notice the condition of his heart, as, as, as the condition of his, his self. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. This is the dire circumstance he's in. At the mouth of death. Broken up. And he prays that someone would lovingly come in and strike him in the head. Now, a couple of illustrations, because maybe it gives us a little break from the intensity of that. You've seen this principle work. You have a child. Uh, when our children were growing up, they maybe get a hold of a knife or a sharp stick, and you tell them, give me that, but they want it badly. And you're afraid that if you just go in there and just grab it, it's going to spring back and hurt them, cut them. So what, you, what do you do? You know that the heart right now, that's a delicacy. That's, that's what's good for me. Is this sharp stick that will hurt me. And you want to get an exchange. What do you do? You bring in something that's sweet, a lollipop, and you maximize it, right? Mmm, this is good. You got a stick. Well, this is great. What's that stick going to do? Oh, you want to try this, little sister? Mmm, let's give me the stick. Exchange happens, right? The lollipop is better than the stick. I see it with dogs. I've got two big German shepherds. Uh, they teach us, the Bible uses the terms of the flesh and refers to animals that way. And so I think animals are meant to teach us a little bit about how the flesh operates. I can, we can't cut those dogs' nails for the life of us. You know, they, they're always pulling or biting or rolling around. They're big. They've got a white one and a black one. It's, they're not named salt and pepper, but <laughs> this is white and black. It, it, what, how do you get their nails? Because they tear up the floor if you don't, and they jump on you and they scratch you. What do you do? It's the lollipop principle, right? You get some treats. One of them likes crackers. <laughs> the other one is, uh, you say, gluten intolerant? They get all kinds of rashes. So you've got to find some meat, which is a little more expensive. And you're, you're sitting there. You take one at a time. Robin's the nail cutter, because I'll go right, right to the wick and catch the blood there. So she does that. And I, I hold the food. And that dog is so riveted on the food they're waiting for each one to drop for me to scoop it. And I'm trying to be careful of my fingers. They don't get bitten off. But the point is, they don't really care anymore about getting the nails clipped. It is all about the food. That's how the heart works. How do you deal with a fleshly heart that loves promises of good that are outside of God? Well, the light of the gospel comes in by the power of the Holy Spirit and shows us Christ. Second Corinthians 4 reminds us. The light of Christ shines into our hearts. We see our sinfulness. We see what it deserves before the holy God. And we look to Christ by faith and we see his glory. And then we forget and we're drawn away again. But remember, he's for us in the gospel. And he's about sanctifying us. And so we look to the promises of God in Christ. Even embracing someone who's going to come along and whap us in the head. Because our heart is for Christ, for God. And we know that justice is coming one day. A heart is for his glory. So we've seen substitutionary counting. We rest in that. Sanctifying control of the heart. The Lord would incline and steer. 
And remember, it's verse 8 is so powerful there. My eyes are toward you, and you I seek refuge. The Lord lays before us himself in his glory to incline the heart. We embrace God's sovereign confrontation through believers. It is a kindness. It's hard to accept. It's oil, so medication, perfume, anointing of a king. That's the picture. Let my head not refuse it. Twice he's laid his heart bare before the Lord, acknowledging that he's helpless apart from God's sanctifying grace and remembrances of the gospel to even do this. This is... His work by His Spirit. Now for the, the treat. Fourthly, the apex of this mountain. God's saving covenant Lord. This is, this is amazing. And check the time because this is where I want to focus. Oh. Verses 8 through 10. God's saving covenant Lord. He's provided somebody for us. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. And I just have to stop for a moment there. When you see Lord God, that lowercase L-O-R-D, that's Adonai, it is describing a covenantal treaty. Now in the, that culture and in the surrounding cultures, when a country was, could not defend itself from the threat of an enemy or did not have provisions, they would reach out to a greater emperor or country or king. And they would step into a covenantal contract in which the smaller nation would pay their taxes and they would surrender loyalty to the greater king and the greater king would protect. So there's blessings for honoring that covenant and there is a curse. If you didn't pay the taxes, you weren't faithful, you were cut off and the, the judgment of that greater king came against you for what was for you would be now against you. That, that's the context of these covenantal treaties. And when the text describes, oh God, my Lord, he's underlining a title that connects to a, a covenantal relationship with David. Now, as you look through scripture, there are two kinds of covenants. I just described for you what's been called a covenant of law, where there's blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. There's also Covenants of loving kindness, covenant of hesed, that's the Hebrew word for loving kindness, a covenant of grace. And that happens when the greater king, it's also called a royal grant or kingly grant, the greater king fulfills the responsibilities of the lesser king. And in the case of Christ, takes the curse of the cross and fulfills the obedience required of loyalty to God so that by faith through grace, we get it all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, David is underlining what is called a Davidic covenant, God's promise to him that he would raise up his throne in the promise of Jesus Christ. We would call this a covenant of grace, a, a salvation covenant, in which Christ came and fulfilled the terms, that fulfilled the obedience for the blessing and took the curse because of disobedience and is given to us a promise of grace. And David is clinging to this, but my eyes are toward you, my covenant Lord, my, my saving Lord. In you, so there's this bond, this covenantal bond, I seek refuge, leave me not defenseless. Now you can't help but think when you see that of Paul's statements in Ephesians. In him we have redemption. In him we have obtained an inheritance. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's that kind of talk. We've been joined to him. 
Christ calls it a new covenant or the covenant of grace, the covenant of salvation. He's done it all. He's redeemed us from the law's curse, fulfilled its blessing and given it to us as an inheritance, as a gift and raised us up in him above every power, dominion, rule and authority, Paul says. That is the promise that he's clinging to. Now notice, in light of that promise of this union with God who is for him in Christ, notice his request. And this is where we want to drive. Keep me, verse 9, from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. That is what this salvation covenant does. We are in a trap The wicked exploit that, and he reverses it. He brings the believer into blessing, ultimate sense of salvation in Christ. He takes the curse, Christ, and then he flips it. The unbeliever has enjoyed life and blessing today, but when Jesus comes back, he gives rest to the believers and judgment. He entraps judgment and salvation. Now, this theme, and this is what gets exciting, this theme is painted through all of scripture. We want to ask this question, who is David's covenant Lord? That's the question of verse eight, because you've heard me say Jesus, prove it to me, I will. And what does he do? What does he do? And for that, look at Matthew 22. Now you're going to have to turn with me if you've got your Bible on an app, you're going you're gonna to be right there. I've got the pages. So I, it's one of those things you've got to like quit talking and turn there for me. I don't talk and drive very well, and I don't talk and turn <laughs> very well. <laughs> My wife will say, uh, honey, you're going 30 miles per hour on the interstate. We're, we're, you're talking. Can you <laughs> give me the phone? <laughs> I don't think it's that bad, but it's, it probably feels like it for uh, She might be nodding. It's that bad. Verse 42, Matthew 22. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Jesus is asking this question. They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? This underlines the the Lordship of Jesus Christ as the son of David, but also we have the two persons of the Trinity, Lord the Father, working through Lord the Son of David. That's the Lord he's turning to. Now, in Jewish rabbinic literature, this was called the two powers of Yahweh. Throughout the Old Testament, as they sought to interpret it, you'll find in their literature, a emphasis on the invisible Yahweh in the heavens and the visible personal Yahweh on earth. And I want to unpack that because this is beautiful. What we see is Christ in the Old Testament. Now, a couple texts to set you up for it. Go to Jude 1, verse 5, and then John 8, verse 56. And then we're going to jam through some texts underlining Christ and his appearances in the Old Testament. Jude 1, verse 5. And I've got it written in my notes so I can cheat and quit look, turning the pages. Jude 1, verse 5, John eight fifty six. This has to do with the Exodus event. And then God's relationship with Abraham. So, Jude 1, verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, 
who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus is seen as the one who delivered his people out of Egypt. And for some reason, we tend to forget that, so he needs to remind us. John eight fifty six. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Truly, verse 58 says, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I'll say it again. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I want you to see, I want you to see this played out. Christ, we call it a Christophany or pre-incarnate before the incarnation, revealing himself in his pre-virgin birth incarnation glory, interacting with Israel and Moses and Abraham. Go to Genesis chapter 18. We're asking, who is this covenant Lord and what does he do? Why does David make claim to him? Like it's just a normal thing for a believer. Genesis 18. Now this is before this event at Sodom and Gomorrah where God, we're told in the New Testament that Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of the final judgment to come and we're to take heed to that. There, there's episodes in scripture where there's these pictures of final judgment that interrupt history. Sodom and Gomorrah is one of them. But notice what verse 1 describes, 18.1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Did you get that? The Lord appeared to him. Verse 3. O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. This isn't just some kind of bubbly vision. Verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. I'm going to return in a year. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Drop to verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. John 8 told us Abraham saw Christ and was glad. Here is the appearance of the Lord interacting with Abraham. And what does he do? He brings a promise of blessing in Isaac who will bring Christ. But what does he also do? On the other hand, is he brings judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He is flipping the blessing and the trap. Judgment is being served. Blessing to his people. Jacob. Genesis 48. If you can go there, Genesis 48, verse 15. Those of you who want to jump ahead to Hosea 12, it's a commentary on, the, on this event. Hosea 12, 2 through 5. Look at Jacob. So Genesis 48, 15 through 16. Hosea 12, 2 through 5. Let's start with Hosea 12, 2 through 5. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. Verse 4, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. Verse 5, 
The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. And we need to be reminded that the title angel describes a function. You could translate it messenger. So oftentimes we're going, well, messenger or the word of God, that would be another way to express this. Sometimes it's an angel, as we think, like Gabriel or Michael. And at other times we see deity ascribed to this. Think of messenger of the Lord or the word of the Lord. You find this in 1 Samuel where the word of the Lord communicates and appears to Samuel. You find it in Jeremiah 1 where the word of the Lord touches Jeremiah. It's not just this voice he's hearing. He's called the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord. Genesis 48. So what I want you to see is the angel, deity ascribed to this angel, or messenger would be a better way to put it. We're arguing this is Christ. Genesis 48, 15 through 16, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, verse 16, the angel or messenger who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. He takes God and the messenger of the Lord and interweaves them together seamlessly. He's a shepherd and he's a redeemer. What does Jacob's covenant Lord do? He redeems Jacob. He turns the trap set before him into salvation. Moses, Exodus 3, classic text. Exodus 3, verse 2. And then Exodus 14, the the two texts. So Exodus 3, Exodus 14. And if you like to rush ahead to Judges 2, 1. See, this is the challenge with the apps. I don't know how you do that. You have to have three apps. Pull up. Exodus 3, Exodus 14, and then Judges 2, 1. So, here's the angel of the Lord. Think messenger of the Lord or the word of the Lord. Exodus 3, 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, the picture is of the angel of the Lord in the bush, even interacting, turning to see. God called to him out of the bush. Now the angel of the Lord or the word of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord is ascribed the title God. God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. In verse six, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. What are we doing? The trap that the Egyptians have laid for Israelites, it's now been released and Egypt is placed into the trap. This is what the covenant Lord does in saving his people. I'm going to have to jump. So we're not going to do Exodus 14, but you see the angel of the Lord and the pillar of the cloud in Exodus 14. And you see him separating Israel and Egypt and flipping the salvation in the trap so that Egypt is drowned, the Pharaoh and his army, and Israel passes through. In Judges 2, 1, the text I had there is a commentary on that. The angel of the Lord or messenger of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Remember, Jude said, Jesus brought them up. Judges 2, 1, this messenger of the Lord says, I brought you up. He flips the tables. Numbers 22. And then we'll jump to 
Revelation close this up. Who is the covenant Lord? We're saying Jesus. What does he do? Flips the tables. Judges and saves. Numbers 22, verse 6. Israel has been delivered from the, the Red Sea. They've grumbled in the wilderness. God commanded Moses to strike the rock, which 1 Corinthians 10 tells us is a picture of Christ. And water came to provide for them. They've been brought to the wilderness. And there's a king named Moab, or a king of Moab named Balak. And he pays Balaam, a prophet, to curse Israel. Numbers 22, verse 6. Come now, curse this people for me. That's king of Moab, Balak, telling Balaam, curse him. Verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his delivery. Verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord, think messenger of the Lord, standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. Verse 32. Behold, I have come to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. There are three times in Old Testament scripture where the angel of the Lord has a sword. And this is one of them. And what is he doing? He's standing in the way of Balaam cursing God's people. He's redeemed them. And he says that only what I put in your mouth will be a blessing to the people. Let's look at what he put in his mouth. Numbers 23, verse 5. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. Verse 8. Balaam says, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Let's look at the blessing, 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. This is Balaam prophesying of Christ. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, a depiction of crushing the serpent's head, Satan empowering Moab to curse Israel. The angel of the Lord stands in his way, the messenger of the Lord. He turns the curse into a blessing, the promise of his coming. Beautiful pictures of a saving covenant Lord throughout scripture. Christ standing in the gap, sword in his hand. Ah, another one. Number, or First Chronicles 21. I want you to see David. First Chronicles 21, verse 7. Israel has sinned against the Lord. They have now become the enemy. They've acted, if you will, like Egypt, like Moab. And so God is judging. First Chronicles 21, verse 7, God was displeased with this thing and he struck Israel in verse 8. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Verse 16. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. There's your second time where the messenger of the Lord has his drawn sword. So he sees him. Bigger than life, standing between earth and heaven. Verse 18. Now the angel of the Lord, or messenger of the Lord, or word of the Lord, had commanded Gad, which is the prophet, to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord. Again, the sacrifice is pointing to Christ. And verse 26. 
And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. What did David's covenant Lord do? He turns the tables. Israel is against the Lord. They have become like the Philistines, like Egypt. God is opposed. David, through the command of the angel of the Lord, provides sacrifice. Through the sacrifice, God is for them. Amazing. Now I want to close with Revelation and pull this together. Revelation 22, let's start there and work our way to four texts. Revelation 22, 16. I want, to see, I want you to see Christ laying claim that he is the root and descendant of David, that he has the keys of David, and then the instruction to us. Revelation twenty two sixteen, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Notice his connection to David, son of David. We're asking, who's this covenant Lord who flips the tables, who brings judgment and salvation? Christ is laying claim. Revelation 3, verse 7. You're going to move now to the front of the book. Revelation 3, verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. See his connection to David, the son of David. He has the keys of life to lock, to bar out of life and to open to life. Revelation 2, verse 12. Now we're going to see Balaam brought in because Balaam was pretty tricky. He couldn't curse, so he introduced immorality. He taught Balak the king to introduce temptation to Israel, and they were seduced. Now we're brought back to Psalm 141 on the heart being seduced by delicacies. So Revelation 2.12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. You've seen the sword. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. There's the covenant Lord. Executing judgment on sexual immorality that's been introduced into the church. And what the Lord is even recognizing is that there are within the church people who are not for Christ. And unfortunately, sexual immorality often draws attention to that, where our heart really is. And he's promising a sword. But here's the comfort. Remember, law and gospel. There's law. Confront, confronts our hearts. Revelation 1, verse 12. Now, what this verse does as we pull all this... Beautiful pictures together. In Revelation 1.12, John gets a picture of the glory of Christ and he's drawing from all these Old Testament pictures and applying them to Jesus. Revelation 1.12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Think of the picture of Christ in Daniel 7 and 9 on the 
the glory cloud before the ancient of days. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. All these pictures of the angel of the Lord, the Son of Man, the Word of God, the Son of God, the one who stood in the fiery furnace with Daniel's three friends, the son of man standing upon the glory cloud of heaven before the ancient of days, the word of God executing judgment by the sword of the Lord, all are brought into this beautiful picture of Christ's glory. But verse 17, it's priceless. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the covenant Lord that David is looking to. And how do we know that he can take what is the trials and difficulties and sufferings of this life and turn the tables, save us from that, and bring us into glory and then bring justice on the world because he himself, that's the key I wanted to bring you to, he not only turns the tables for Egypt, turns the tables for Abraham, turns the tables for Jacob, turns the tables before Israel and Balaam, and then David with the angel of the Lord, the word of the Lord, but he himself has turned the tables. That's what's going on here. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. He himself has come down, died and risen again from the dead. He has turned the tables. He overturned the snare of death with his resurrection life. And that's the promise we need to find refuge from our hearts is to look to Christ, the covenant-saving Lord. I pray that your heart's been enriched by even a little bit of a lengthy biblical theology, we call that, looking at the pictures of Christ, even the Old Testament. Lord, we thank you so much for laying before us the glory of Jesus. Our world wants to paint him as some weak savior, that he is a, a just judge. And he alone is qualified to execute justice on this world as the creator, but he's also qualified to save as the one who has died and been raised. So as believers, we ask that we would look to him. And as unbelievers here who are present, we pray that they would despair of themselves and look to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.